This is a momentous and pivotal day in the life of our church. Today is the kind of the culmination of seven months of praying and planning. And this morning, our members will vote on whether we become the downtown congregation of Park Church by merging into Park, which is over in the Highlands, and become one church with two congregations instead of independent churches. And as I've been thinking for a number of months of what I would want to say to you, if we got to this point, God has continually brought my mind back to the biblical pattern of death, burial, and resurrection. So earthly kingdoms, and you can think of ancient kingdoms like Egypt and Babylon and Persia and Rome, or you can think of more modern, like ideological kingdoms, but earthly kingdoms, worldly kingdoms grow, they expand their influence, their control, their power through conquest. There has to be winners and losers for an earthly kingdom to have more power, to do more, to be more, to include more geography and more people. So they attack and they defeat and they destroy and they crush. As I've been thinking for months about the kingdom of God, it is so radically different that at the center of our faith is a beaten and bloody man hanging on a cross. Not in what appears as glorious victory, but what appears as apparent weakness and defeat. Now, of course, his death did not have the last word or none of us would be here this morning. So if Jesus' body going into the ground was the last chapter of the Christian story, there wouldn't be a Christian story. We wouldn't be celebrating anything. And so what we actually celebrate is this truth established in the Gospels that on Easter morning, Jesus put death to death and walked out of his own tomb. And his life and his death and his resurrection are a way that he gives us actually a pattern for how his kingdom grows, which is what I want to talk to you about this morning. So if you would, turn with me to John chapter 12. And I'll give you a little bit of context as you're turning there. John chapter 12, New Testament is about this far through your Bible. Or if you have your app, you can cheat and go directly to it. John chapter 12. So in this context, Jesus with his disciples is going up to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And what he's really there for is that Friday, Saturday, Sunday's events, which would be the Feast of the Passover. Except this year, Jesus is not just going to celebrate the Passover as one of many faithful Orthodox Jews. He's going to be the final sacrificial Passover lamb himself. So that's the context of what we're going to read here. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast, that's the Passover, were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, one of the disciples, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. 
If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The word of the Lord. I've got one big idea for you this morning, and I'm going to say it through four different kind of key points if you're following along. The one big idea that I'm sharing on this particular Sunday is that new life and abundant fruit come from dying to self and sowing the king's seed. Okay, so the first thing we see here in this text, your main point number one, is that the growth of the kingdom of God is sacrificial. And what we see here in John 12, 24 is that Jesus answered to these Greeks, Gentiles, outsiders, marginalized, that want to see him, that want to know him the way that some of the Jews could know him and maybe even participate in his salvation the way that Jews could seemingly participate in his salvation. His answer, verse 24, is to say, I'm telling you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It will bear much fruit. And in this analogy, you'll notice that the grain of wheat is Jesus himself. And this much fruit that he speaks of is everyone who will then, over now thousands of years, put their faith in Jesus' name and become part of his family, become part of the church. That's the abundant fruit. And what we need to hear Jesus saying is, unless I die, we will remain separated. Your sin, your brokenness is a barrier to a right relationship with God. So if I live and I'm fine, we will not be fine. We will not have a restored relationship. But he's saying, but if I die to pay the debt of sinners, then I can welcome you and we will be together. So let me take a deeper dive into this analogy of the seed for just a moment. Masada was this ancient Jewish fortress down by the Dead Sea in the middle of the wilderness. And you may know that when Jerusalem was being attacked and completely destroyed by the Romans in AD 70, many Jews fled to this mountaintop fortress where the Romans laid siege to it for many, many months and eventually just starved everyone out. So they committed mass suicide. The, the Romans attacked, just reduced the entire fortress to rubble. Well, in recent years, some archaeologists have gone and have begun digging up this fortress. What was here? What did it look like? How many people lived here? How many people died here? And what's interesting for the point of this message is they actually found under piles and piles of rubble some date palm seeds that were 1,900 years old. I mean, just based where they were in the rubble. And one of the archaeologists actually took them and watered them and fed them with nutrients. And a number of them actually blossomed and grew into fruit-producing trees. Now, here's the lesson. If the seed is safe, it's useless. Okay, in our house, we have the junk drawer in the kitchen. Amen? Like anybody else? Okay, see that hand. Um, any others? Yes, amen. Okay, in our junk drawer, amongst many other things, is a bunch of seeds for our garden outside. And you know that if those seeds are in those packets in that drawer under the microwave... Nothing is ever going to happen. We're not going to open that one day and be like, sweet summer squash, tomatoes, praise God. You know, no, those, those seeds, so long as they're in those packets and it's dry and it's safe and it's the right temperature, nothing is ever going to happen with those seeds except that they be seeds. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you know, you have to soak that seed. You have to literally let that outer husk that protects it 
rot and fall away and die in order to activate the potential for new life and fruit within it. And so by comparing himself to a grain of wheat, which is just a form of seed, Jesus is saying, I have to die to bring forth much fruit. I'm going to die for the sake of building my church. Now, what I want you to notice then is the very next thing. Jesus is saying, I will literally die to build my church, to build my kingdom. The very next thing, verse 25, he then says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And he's calling people to serve him and follow him and to do as he has done. And this is fascinating because what, what Jesus is referring to here is not self-hatred. That's how it sounds to us Westerners. We're like, wow, hate yourself, really? Well, what he's talking about in the language that he was speaking, probably Aramaic, was not self-hatred, self-loathing, self-harm. It was self-forgetfulness. It was self-denial. So when he talks about hating your life, I want you to notice two things. In Semitic languages, this was a very common comparison. And when you say that you hate one thing and you love another thing, you're not literally saying, I hate this. Because elsewhere, Luke 14, 26, Jesus said, if you don't hate your father and mother and brother and sister and your wife, you can't be my disciple. And you're like, wait a minute. So, so do I love my wife or do I hate my wife? But see, everybody knew what he was talking about. And what he was talking about is that compared to your love for me, no other earthly love comes even close in terms of dictating your affection, your priorities, ordering your loves of your life. But then secondly, also, we, we, we need to understand he's not making a reference to the physical body, the bios, as Greeks would call it. He's not saying hate your body, harm your body. He's saying hate or love less your psyche, psyche. And what we would say today is your self or your identity. And what we hear in Jesus' words is that the comparison or the contrast is how much do you love me and abandon your personal self-made identity based on the things of the world? What's the contrast? Which, which do you love more? Are you actually following me? And get this, then Jesus says, if you want to serve me, then you have to actually follow me, which is the word, be my disciple, which is in modern terms, like come and be my apprentice or live in apprenticeship to me, which means do as I have done. Or in other words, my life and my death and my resurrection is a pattern in a sense for yours. And this is stunning that in the context, Jesus is comparing my physical, literal death to bring new life and abundant fruit and your death to self. And so your first point was that the kingdom of God grows sacrificially. The second point is the growth of the kingdom is self-denying. And what Jesus is doing is setting up this contrast. All the kingdoms of the world, the natural instinct is self protection, self-promotion. The way up is up. You climb on top of other people. You put them down to raise yourself, to grow, to be more influential, to be more powerful, to have more control. And he's saying, but the way my gospel grows and the way my kingdom grows is not through self-promotion, but through self-denial. Jesus is saying the way up in the kingdom of God is down. Completely paradoxical. He's flipping everything on its head. And so as an application, we ought to 
look at how we as followers of Jesus are living in our culture. And when we find ourselves using the same tools or the same weapons as everyone else just to seek more power, more control, more influence. And we're using politics just like everybody else is using politics. And just as bad, we're using office politics, right? You, you, you flatter someone to their face and then you gossip about and slander them behind their back, which is just two sides of one coin. And that is I'm using other people to get what I want. And Jesus says, not so with the kingdom of God. By the way, when Christians act this way and we're like, yep, the way up is up. I'm going to protect myself. I'm going to promote myself. What is this saying to non-Christians? Is they have every right to look at the church with a form of cynicism and say something like, you're just the same as us. You're just as egotistical, self-promoting. You want power. You want control just like we want power and we want control. You're really no different. You do it in Jesus' name, which makes it doubly worse, but you're just like everyone else. And so my question this morning as I'm looking at this point, the growth of the kingdom is through self-denial. What would happen and what kind of testimony could a church have if non-Christians are watching on as we're parked here in the middle of the city and they're like, wow, there's a group of people that are like, it's not about me, it's not about us. It really is about Jesus. And what if we're okay being second or third or 10th or 100th so long as Jesus is first? What kind of impact might that have on the world if we agreed with Jesus that so long as we are safe and self-protective, we are useless? But if we die to self, if we sow our lives, as it were, into the ground, maybe God can do something with that to bring forth new life and abundant fruit in his church. Now, let me build on this by having you turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So you're going ahead in your Bible, toward the back of your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And as you turn there, let me set the scene of what we're going to read here. So this is years later, after the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the man writing this letter is an apostle. He's a follower of Jesus named Paul. He was a persecutor of the church, but Jesus met him, transformed his life. And now he's writing to one of the churches that he planted in the city of Corinth, a city very incredibly similar to Denver. If you study out the culture, the crossroads, the, the immorality, the idolatry, the commerce, the entertainment, it's a lot like Denver. And there's this church, but the problem is there's a lot of jealousy and strife. There are factions in the church where each different group that follows a different leader is like, no, my leader is the best leader and us, like my tribe within the church. My tribe is the best tribe. We're the ones that kind of got the gospel truth right. We got the scripture right. We do it this way. We have these routines, these patterns, these habits. They're a little different than that group over there and we're better, Okay. And you're like, okay, what else is new? So Paul's going to confront this in 1 Corinthians 3 and basically say, when you do this, you are acting just like everyone else. And he's going to say, you're acting in a merely human manner. Of course, you're self-promoting. Of course, you're being shallow and selfish and temporal and carnal. But when you do all these things, you're acting just like everyone else. So join me in 1 Corinthians 3, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 5. That's the context. So then he says this, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, 
Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God which gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building on it. Let each one take care how he builds, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. I think there are two main and related points, and this is your points three and four. First, I want you to notice that Paul says, you, the church, you want to pit Apollos and me and Peter and others, you want to pit us against each other as if we're in some kind of competition. We're not. He says, we're just fellow servants. We're fellow sowers in God's field. We're fellow builders of God's house. And so your third point that I want you to see is that the growth of the kingdom is synergistic. That's a big word, but someone said something here on Monday night that I loved. And when we were giving testimonies, she said, it was someone from Park, and I don't know her, but she said, I'm just praying and hoping, and this has been my picture, that God does bad math. And what she said is that one church plus one church does not equal just the sum of its parts, but that God does something way beyond because each church laid down certain rights, certain control, certain habits of theirs to do something bigger together. And this is the idea of a synergy, if you know it from physics or chemistry or biology, is the idea is when multiple things combine and the effect is greater than the sum of its parts. Many of you are in the medical field, so you know this from prescription drugs. It's like, if I give this drug, it does this. If I give this drug, it only does this. Ooh, but if I combine these drugs... You know, in in pejorative ways, thinking of like a cocktail of prescription drugs, but some of you have to take those. And the combined effect of those drugs together does significantly more to benefit your health than just this and this plus this that you think that it would accomplish that, okay? So the synergy here is Paul saying, look, I planted some gospel seeds years ago when I was making my way through Corinth and I stopped and I led some people to Christ and I started a church and then I moved on and and Apollos comes along and he's watering those same seeds of the gospel and, and then a bunch of people got saved and then those people started telling people about Jesus and they got saved and then those people told people and those people told people and he's like, and before you know it, sinners are getting right with God and people are walking out of spiritual death into life And this is way more than just I said some words and then he said some words. This is a synergy of the gospel. And God loves to work this way. God loves to build synergies around different people, different groups, just saying it's not about me, it's not about you. It's about God. It's about the same kingdom, the same message, the same hope, the same prayers. And friends, what would you do for Christ if you believed my actions are not just my actions? I can't just look at my actions and say, all I did tonight, I was stuck at home and I just prayed from home. No, you didn't just pray from home. You are part of a synergy, a gospel kingdom synergy where God wants to use what you are doing as we partner with others synergistically to do way more than what you think it's accomplishing. That seed goes in the ground for a while. Just get Marty some tulip bulbs for... I don't know, our, her birthday and Valentine's and our anniversary all run together. So it's for all of that. You got these tulip bulbs. Um, but, you know, they, they sit there forever and they're just like, the, they look like rocks. 
They just look like rocks. And then you just sit there and soak them and soak them and soak them in water. And before you know it, there's this beautiful red flower that's emerging from that. And it's beautiful. But you can't sit there and just judge it and be like, this is never going to do anything. It's just, it just looks, how can something that looks like a rock do this? Well, how can it do that? This is the last point. Because the growth of the kingdom is not just sacrificial and self-denying and synergistic. The growth of the kingdom of God, point four, is supernatural. Verse six, we worked, but God gave the growth. Verse seven, God gives the growth. And some of you know what happens when you work and work and work and work and God doesn't show up. You're just doing it in your best strength, right? You work and work. Or we know what happens when we do spiritual work in the flesh. Let me show you something. Back in Mark 4, and you don't need to turn there, but Jesus is giving a number of parables in places like Matthew 13 and Mark 4. And he's describing to his disciples, you want to come after me? You want to know what my kingdom is like? And he uses all these agrarian metaphors, and this, this is one of them. So Mark 4:26, he says, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear, which is the fruit. So he's saying, okay, you got this question. How does the seed do that? And he's like, you don't know how it does that. And what's fascinating is there's actually a Greek word here. When he says it happens by itself, it's the Greek word automatos. So he's saying it happens automatically. You don't know how it happens. You can't make it happen. He's like, you can prepare the field. You can sow the seed. You can water it. You can pull the weeds. You can give it the best chance to grow. But if God doesn't show up in a supernatural way, we might as well be sowing pea gravel. The seed would have no effect if God didn't show up and do what only God can do. And that's, that's Paul's point here. He's like, look, I was faithful to do this and Apollos and others came along and they did this, but all praise and honor goes to God because he's the only one who can plant that inherent power, that supernatural power in this seed. And this is how Paul says this in Romans 1, a familiar verse to many of you. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the inherent power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And he reminds us of this supernatural working, and I give you two reasons. One is humility and one is encouragement. The growth of the kingdom has to be supernatural or else you and I would become puffed up. We would become proud. We'd be like, look at what we did. Look at the church that we built. Look at the people that we led to Christ. And we could be like, it's, it's all about us. And God says, well, if I don't show up with my power in the seed, again, you might as well be selling, sowing tiny rocks in your field because nothing's going to happen. And that keeps us humble but it also encourages us because God does show up in power. He does work and he loves to work. So you hear this humility and encouragement in Paul's words back in 1 Corinthians 3, where he's like, don't make much of me. Don't make much of Apollos. Don't just make much of like, hey, look at the church at Corinth or look at this tribe or that tribe. He's like, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Christ alone. It's all about his life-transforming story that he lived as we should have lived and he died in our place to forgive us and free us from guilt and shame and judgment. 
and to restore our soul. So let me close here with three gospel applications that I mean for this point in time this morning. Number one, we must die to ourselves. Not, not theoretically, but Jesus is saying, come, follow me. Let my life and death and resurrection be a pattern for yours. And dying to ourselves in this moment when we're talking about a church merger is something like, God, it's not about me and it's not about you. It's not about our talents. It's not about our savings. It's not about our roles, our abilities, our best laid plans of how we were going to do this on our own. It's not about our turf. This is our father's world. This is our father's city. And self-denial says, God, it's not mine, it's yours. And by the way, I'll lead off. So I've been, I've been at this for almost, well, 15 years or so. So Grace City is a massive part of my identity. And I didn't realize how massive a part of my identity was until I was asked to let go of certain things. And it hurt. And it didn't hurt in a bad way. It hurt in a good way, if that makes sense. It hurt in a way that's healing of like, God keeps working on you. So... You know, like leadership and preaching and having a flexible schedule and for years and years just having the trust of people that say, we love you and you're going to do what you're going to do and the work's going to get done and we're going to feel loved and encouraged, so be flexible, go spend time with your family, that's great. You know, and, and, and to change stuff is like, oh, wait a second, but I hear God saying, hey, you know what, Matt, one day your body's going to go in the ground, and by the way, all, all of yours are too, we just... As you say, celebrated this on it. We commemorated this on Ash Wednesday. We are from dust. We will return to dust. I mean, our physical bodies. And I don't mean to offend anybody this, with, with this, but, but guess what? A generation from now, no one will remember our names. How exciting is that? I mean, whatever church we build here, and let's say that we're able to pass off a very successful, thriving, gospel-driven, spirit-filled church, People will not go back a generation from now and be like, oh, but we should probably talk about this person and this person and this person. They'll just be doing ministry. And then they'll come meet us one day, okay? Because it's about God. So the question here is what, and I mean specifically, what is God calling you to die to? What is so entrenched in your self-made identity that like when we ask you to vote a certain way and we try to lead you to vote a certain way, you're like, this is really painful. This is part of my safety. This is part of my security. And again, I just remind you, it is. And so long as that seed is safe, it's useless. But you sow that seed. And in the supernatural power of God, he's doing something with that seed to bring new life and abundant fruit. Okay, so that's number one. We must die to ourselves. Number two, I just want to say it's okay to acknowledge your feelings. This is not from this text. I'm just telling you as your pastor and friend. Um, Jesus was not a stoic. This, this always kills me. It's like Jesus is going to the tomb of Lazarus. And it actually says like when he, knows, he knows Lazarus is sick, so he waits to let him die so that he can go say, I am the resurrection and the life. Okay? But if you're in Jesus' shoes and you're going to Lazarus' tomb and you know you're going to be like, yeah, roll the stone away. Lazarus, come out. And he's just going to walk out of his tomb. You'd probably be walking to the tomb with a little skip in your step. Like, what's up? You know, like, watch this. And it, he's going snorting in anger. 
and weeping in deep grief. So Jesus was not a Stoic, and he doesn't call you to be a Stoic. So when, when you're called to let go, man, I, I like things just the way they were. And I get that. Someone used the analogy with me yesterday of saying, this is like moving out of your childhood home. And you know you got to go to college. You know that you want to get married. You want to move on. You're moving to a new city. But you're like, man, I have all these memories. And I know God wants me to do this. And I got to keep going. And this house is bigger and nicer in so many ways. But man, do I have a lot of memories. Or I, I, I caught my boys this morning. One of their favorite things when, when unsupervised is to, uh, they, they link my phone to like Apple TV screen mirroring or whatever, and then they start going through all my photos. So this morning I come out and it's Micah's, who's seven now, it's Micah's third birthday party. And they're just laughing and having the greatest time walking down memory lane. And I, I was looking at a couple of these pictures and little videos of them breaking a pinata and you like start to tear up a little bit. And you're like, oh, the good old days. It was so great back then when they were so tiny and so compliant and <laughs> that never happened. That never happened. Um, but good memories. So I'm just saying that if you feel a sense of, man, this is kind of scary. What if, what if, what if I'm giving up this to get this unknown? And I would just say in the midst of your fears and or tears, just remember that God is great and God is good. This passage has been resonating with me. I'm just sticking on the same theme. Psalm 126, 5 and 6 says, Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves, which again is his abundant fruit with him. Okay? So God is saying even there, way back in the Psalms, like sometimes your best sowing is going to be done through grief, through pain, through the sense of loss and sacrifice and self-denial. And he's like, so go ahead and sow it anyway, because that's how God wants to work. And then finally, third, let's, let's pray for and participate in a supernatural moving of God's spirit. Pray for it, participate in it. Um, you know, one of the central themes of our world, kind of a central organizing principle for how everybody lives their life is selfish taking. And I want our city to see cultures merging because it's selfless giving and selfless giving. And them saying, God's already done something in a bunch of people's hearts and minds to even get to this point. Maybe I could trust that kind of God with my life. And by the way, all throughout the Bible and all throughout thousands of years of human history, the Spirit of God has always gravitated toward surrender. He's never gravitated toward pride. He's never gravitated toward selfish hanging on to stuff, but he loves when he sees surrender. The song that we sang this morning, like, make room. He loves when people are like, God, I'm just I don't even know what this looks like, but I'm making room for you to come and be and do what you want to come and be and do. In just a moment, we're going to welcome some new members. So I'll have those come up here and stand with me in the front. We'll welcome them just briefly. Uh, we're going to take a vote of members, and I'll explain that when we come to that in just a moment. But after that, we're going to sing what may be a new song to some of you, though you may have heard it on the radio or 
elsewhere, and it's a song entitled The Blessing. And uh, if you're like me, you don't, you don't love the songs that just say the same lines over and over. You're like, let's move on with the theology here, okay? Like, we get it. Um, what I love about this song is I'm asking you, like as an under-shepherd of Jesus, like let's follow God into the unknown. And this song is a paraphrase of a number of different scriptures from Exodus and Deuteronomy in particular, where God is leading his people out of Egypt into the unknown. Nobody had been to the promised land. They didn't know what it looked like. And as you know the story, because you're probably reading it in your chronological Bible reading right now, they didn't trust God with it. What we're singing this song, and I want, to, I want you to sing with like kind of a defiant faith. Like, I don't know where God is taking this. I don't know what it'll look like a year from now, three years, five years. I, I'd be lying if I told you, this is what it's gonna look like. This is how many people, this is gonna, gonna be running this and that and the other. But the point of this song is it's okay to follow God into the unknown because he goes before us, he goes behind us, he goes beside us, he goes within us. And he's great and he's good. So he can be trusted with our lives. So God, we love you, we trust you, we hope in you, and we're praying that you use us. We're praying that you use our surrender for your glory and for the joy of all people.